Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. Happy Super Bowl Monday. It's a holiday, right? <laughs> Super Bowl Monday. Exactly. Yeah, Thank you. Toby disagrees, though, as we saw in the commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, congratulations to anybody who's listening who is a from uh, from Kansas City, Kansas, as we were told last night on Twitter. Uh, no, who, who is a Kansas City fan? And uh, if you're a San Francisco fan, our condolences. That's all the football talk. Now let's move on. We are here to answer listener questions about Leifanger's novel, Peace Like a River. It is, I guess, our last, our last Peace Like a River episode. And we got many questions. I'm looking at the thread here on Facebook and it says 169 comments, which has to be nearing... Uh, maybe they didn't set the record, but it's got to be up there as far as how much conversation we had on, on that, just on the one particular thread. So we will get to that in a minute. I wanted to remind you that the bonus episodes over on Patreon, where the three of us are discussing crime and punishment, are now up. So the first episode, talking about the first half of part one, part one, chapters one through four, is now available for your for your ears. So if you head over to patreon.com slash close reads, you can get access to that. If you have already signed up, if you log in, it should be right there on the stream of posts. And then you can also add the RSS feed, the link to whatever podcast app you use uh, to create a separate feed for our Patreon content. Uh, the second episode will be up uh, the week of the 10th. So I guess next week. And then also, uh, don't forget about all the sweet show swag you can get when you sign up for Patreon as well. I did it. I did it. Um, really good, David. <laughs> really admirable. Uh, don't forget, you can join the conversation as always on Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Close Reads Pods. On Facebook, you can just search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group or Close Reads in the thirst bar and join the group there. And then you can also email us, and that's Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget about the newsletter as well. That's closereads.substack.com. And I think that is all the business to get out of the way. So thank you for uh, being patient with me while I went through my spiel. Let's answer some questions, y'all. How do you feel about that? Great. I feel great. Okay. So really start with a hard one. Start with an easy one. Tell me. I need, some, I need some guidance here. Dive into the deep end. Go with a hard one. Okay. So there were... Tim, Tim do you support that? Is, do we have a uh, consensus on that? Yeah. My palms are a little sweaty, but I support it. <laughs> Mom's spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for someone's going to break into a rap here. Right. Okay, um, okay. Let's talk about birds because there were one. many questions about birds, and they're all semi-related. So um, I want to Christine. She posted. Let me see if I can find the actual question because I think that it is a good entryway into this uh, repeated question. So Christine wrote. On pages 133 through 134, the family has just set out from roofing and they see unusual black objects on the ground that turn out to be dead crows. She mentions that it may have been talked about on the show already, but she also mentions that on page 212, when Ruben finds Davy, it says, quote, Fry was chomping about something and Davy stood to soothe him. At this moment, a clutch of crows that had gathered overhead all decided to move on and did so, tutting and cawing. My guts went eerie. In movies, this is where you'd look around for the creeping posse, end quote. So she says, I'm so curious to hear what you all make of the crows being mentioned again at this juncture, especially since it talks about a posse and we know there will in fact be a posse at the end. And then Sarah responds to that and says, yes, can we please talk more about the symbolism behind the birds? There are two separate occasions where a child is chased by a large bird, Swede and the goose, obviously, and then August's neighbor boy and the turkey. And both moments are for comedic effect but are frightening experiences for the kids. So we've got geese hunting, the references we talked about, talked about that in the last episode. We've got the crows and we've got children being chased by birds. So birds, what's up with birds? That's a good question. I think that 
this is this is one of those novels that has a lot of symbolism, a lot of meaningful associations with images and and genres. You've got the Western genre and and, and so there's a lot of ways to interpret these, but what I don't think the novel is, is a straight up allegory in which one thing corresponds to another and there's one way to interpret it. So blackbirds in stories do remind us of death and do have a lot of meaning attached to them, particularly in Westerns. And so I think that's one of those, you can make of it what you will, but let's not try to one-to-one allegorize it necessarily. So I think a lot of the comments on that particular question were right on, what if it's this? What if it kind of reminded me of this? And I think that's a really valid way to look at this, but I'm not going to be able to just straight up say they represent death. So that's what we're looking at, but that's what it's going to mostly be associated with for us. When we see black birds, it's death. And then there's also the hunting thing that we talked about. Um, so I think there's multiple levels to that particular question. And however people are interpreting it, I think that that's, I think it all works from what I saw in the comments. Yeah. I think one thing that we are sort of, I was going to say conditioned or trained to look for like things that correlate to meaning. Like mm-hmm. we always want an image to correlate to a meaning and they often will, but there's also a sense where sometimes there's foreshadowing, for example, but sometimes things are also tonal. Right. And there's like exactly. a, po- there's a sort of a poetic um, emphasis to an image where it's, it's about drawing you into the world and the tone of the story. So, you know, the ambush, the two, the two birds ambushing the children in a sense, someone mentioned that they're like ambushes that can almost be a thematic or a tonal consistency to, to create a, a, a coherent and I guess I'll use the word again, consistent experience for the reader. And, and yet at the same time, it's going to be speaking to a sort of, it, it allows a sort of danger or, you know, a sort of tension to be at the core of the story in those, mo- those moments keep, they keep that running through, if that makes right. sense. Tim, go, what, what, we, what do you want to say? My, the only thing that makes me think there might be something more to it, like, I, I agree. I think you're right. I think that it's tempting to see a lot in these birds. The only point that makes me think, ah, maybe there's something going on there, is at the bottom of 133. So I'll start in the middle of the sentence. Um, but getting closer, we saw it was a crow after all and dead. Struck by a car, it lay all mashed to the road, but for one free wing which rose and fell by the gusts. It was a much more grievous sight than you'd think. A dead crow lying in the road out in the heart of no place. And just before we reached it, the wind brought up that wing again so it looked like a thing asking mercy. That that has the kind of aroma of symbolism for me. That being said, what? I don't know what I would I don't know what I would affix it to, aside from kind of what you guys were saying. Um there's an ominousness just to that vision. I like this idea, the, or the, the phrase, an aroma of symbolism. Right. Because I when agree. we talk about symbolism, we can talk about it in a lot of different ways. Because it, like, there can be, as Heidi said, like a sort of allegorical symbolism where a symbol means something specific and it tells us what to think, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Or it gives us some sort of a clue. Um, or it 
without or or it's like it's meant to represent something inside a character or something right like that. every single time you see a swan in yates you're supposed to associate it with dot dot mm-hmm. dot right right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's so a- the aroma idea is interesting because i think it, it, it sort of is a better way of saying saying what i was trying to say about tone Right. Well, and I think that in this particular book, the reason I hesitate to say crows equal blank, geese equal blank, is because this they're used so fluidly, and um, and the, the terms a, are n- well. No, I think th- I not necessarily. I think I'm not expressing myself very well. That. For example, the hunting idea, what we talked about last episode, the hunter becomes the hunted and the hunted becomes the hunter. And, and there, there's this shifting of the landscape, kind of the emotional Mm -hmm. landscape Mm -hmm. around each image throughout the story. And, and that's, it's brilliantly crafted Mm. if if you're only try- if you're only seeing it one way, it, 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 I feel like in a book of this much subtlety, um, it it forces a level of interpretation that misses some of the subtlety. If you're just trying to say crows represent death and that's it, and then we're done. Mm. So I think you kind of let, as David said, the tone of the scene hmm. be more of your guide of interpretation because the emotional weight of the story feels like more of what matters here than kind of the analytical system of trying to figure out what something represents in each scene. Yeah. Hmm. Does it, um, do you find yourselves when you run across something like this, like immediately trying to solve the puzzle or put the pieces together? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so you see something, you see a, you run across the birds and it's obviously something, and then you're like, oh, this is the fifth time birds have come up, you know? Right. So you start, rep- you start recognizing that there are patterns or there are repetitions, which means that it means something. But do you feel immediately like you have to, like there's a dissonance within you that needs to be resolved and it's not going to be resolved unless you're able to put those pieces together until it means something? Or does it, are you okay right. with it being ambiguous and, and maybe meaning a lot of different things or something? Well, I think that f- I'll, I'll answer that for me. When I first started, well, I was thinking actually you should answer right, for Tim, and I'll have to answer me. for you. Yeah. Do you mind? Perfect. I think answer that from- that is actually probably more of the right way to read this book. But the, um, I think when I first started learning about, say, symbolism, I would approach a book and then immediately go into that analytical headspace. Mm-hmm. And and try to solve it like a puzzle, just like you're saying. And mm-hmm. then along the way, that fails. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, you read something like North of Fry or Joseph Campbell, you know, definitely read North of Fry if you're choosing between the two. But <laughs> um, um, and it tells you in throughout history, this, you know, crows mean death. And so then when you read yeah. about crows in a story, you're like looking for these threads of death or whatever. And that, and I think that that works, but it takes you into an analytical headspace so that that's what you're seeing when you read that scene. And I, I think that that does a story of, of such <laughs> magisterial subtlety as peace, like a river, um, a great disservice because then you in that headspace you're missing i think the emotional weight of the story 
if that's all you're looking for. And, and I don't think that literature should be reduced to allegorical significance, even when it works, even in this case, when you're like, okay, crows probably do have something to do with death. But then what Tim read, that beautiful passage of what Tim read with the connection with mercy, and then all these other memories of hunting and all of that. Like, I think that that's more what we're what we could be paying attention to rather than just trying to figure out what one symbol means in a story. It strikes me that one of th- that there's a difference between what a symbol makes a character realize or think mm-hmm. about and what a symbol makes us think about as readers. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and and sometimes a symbol is there because it or or something like a crow is there in part because it creates a realization or some sort of a change or an epiphany or something within the characters themselves. And that's, it's, that's more important within the context of the story than that we realize something or are mm-hmm. able to put something together. Tim, do right. you feel a dissonance like that? And do you feel like you need to put it together and respond and make it mean something? Or identify me, meaning? I will slow down and try to see if I can, like, if there's a symbol there, depending on like the context of, the passage. So that passage that I read was one where I slowed down and I was like, okay, what's going on here? There's something, it's almost, it's almost like you go into a room and you see a nail in the wall and you think, is that nail supposed to, ha- supposed to hold a picture? You know, right. like, is it, do we hold a picture on that nail? And if so, it's important to figure out what picture goes on that nail because it's going to tell us what the room is going to look like kind of it's going to tell us something about the owners or in this case, like the characters. But sometimes you'll see a nail in the wall and you're like, no, nah, it's where somebody, you know, hangs their hat, their jacket. It's, it's not of any great consequence other than um, it serves the story. It serves the plot, but it's not something that needs something hung on it. And if, and if I don't think it needs something hung on it, then I don't, I don't, slow down. But if I do think something needs to be hung on it, then I slow down and kind of go back. Where else have I seen crows? What do I know about like in the tradition, what do bird, what do these type of birds represent typically? Was that, does that fit in the story that's being told? Those are the kind of questions that I ask. Right. I think that's super helpful what you just said. And I, I want to be clear. I think that the question of symbols and images that hold a lot of weight of meaning in in our culture are really important in novels always. And novelists know that and they do that on purpose. I So I think they're definitely worth, they must be paid attention to. And it can be really helpful in a story like this when crows come out of left field. So don't mean to minimize the importance of that. Usually crows do come out of fields. That's they just come a, out that's of a crow fields, thing. sometimes from the left. <laughs> so what you're saying, I think is really important to him. So I don't want to dismiss or minimize the importance of those things. I think just, just be careful that we're not trying to f- kind of force a story to serve the symbols rather than the symbols serving yeah. the emotional weight of the story. Mm. Totally. Heidi, I hear you kind of saying like, a sponge can only, you can only squeeze something out of the sponge if the sponge is like damp and don't squeeze where there's not, that's, that's not like maybe the best metaphor. <laughs> Go but, on. 
Well, no, I just, I think you're right, Heidi. I think trying to squeeze meaning where there is none. I mean, I, I see this in people reading the Bible all the time, especially when verses are extracted from the narrative. You know, I mean, and I don't want to say that there's not that the, let's say the gospels are not loaded with symbolism. They are. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you can kind of read symbols into places where there probably just aren't any. Mm -hmm. Um, But because it's such, you know, it's the book of import. And so it's tempting to find more than what's there. And that can just lead you astray. So instead, what I hear you say, Heidi, is like the emotional kind of current of the story is of primary importance and looking for symbols that may or may not be there. I don't want to say you haven't said it's going to lead you astray. That's more my concern that I'm expressing. Right. I think that that's, I, that's very well said. That if if you go away from some of the scenes in Peace Like a River and are like, that felt a little creepy and I'm not sure why. It's probably because you're picking up on something like crows or fire, you know, some of these things, but, but it's not important that you go back and identify exactly what that is. It's okay to just feel like that feels a little off, but you can still get to the heart of the story without the analysis of all of that. And, and I think we have to trust ourselves in reading stories. Mm -hmm. And, And so. Heidi, if I'm getting you right, if you kind of read something, you say, oh man, that feels kind of creepy and weird. The meaning might be, well, that's because it's creepy and weird. Right. Because the story is like creating an atmosphere that is creepy and weird, not because it's that creepy and weirdness is necessarily symbolically affixed to the crow. Right. I think that that, and I think that's kind of what... David, if I'm interpreting you right, you were kind of getting to that. If like, there's this tonal significance that something like birds kind of lead us to. We recognize, we recognize that. Now, the idea of hunting in the story, I think, is really crucial to it. So when you see a, a bird being hunted, hunters becoming the huntees, like that, like that, that I think is worth really digging into. So the story mm-hmm. will be your guide on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that because in some ways I think I, I wonder personally if all the different degrees of hunting are speaking to a sort of cyclical, wild, chaotic uh, nature that is kind of possible in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that coming in contrast with like the faithfulness of Jeremiah land. So you can look at those things and you can see these themes working and maybe like, maybe those, um, you know, maybe you can make a case that, that, that what I'm saying there is possible, but that doesn't, that's a different thing than saying, you know, this mean, this means this, as opposed to these two ideas are clashing against each other. And it causes me to think about this because that could be there, you know, even if, Anger didn't necessarily mean it to be there. Right. Um, but we should probably move on. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Question. Okay, Heidi, April wants to know, was your guess about how the book ended correct? I was I was wrong. I was right about a couple things, wrong about a couple. Uh, I thought- Sarah that, wants to know if the right people yeah. died. 
Yes, they told the right people died. Um, <laughs> I like that the right people yeah, died. I I definitely thought Jeremiah Land was going to die, but I thought he would die for Davy in some big showdown with the posse, and I thought he would have to choose between earthly justice and his love for his son, and that he would choose Davy, and I thought that would be a good ending. I thought this was much better. I thought that the the salvation of Reuben was everything in the story. And I've said that from the beginning. And I think that him dying for Reuben was the perfect ending. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought that Reuben would be saved, but I didn't, I did not predict that Jeremiah's death would be oriented to Reuben. So I was glad for it. Haley wants to know how many hours do I need to block out of my schedule to listen to this Q&A episode? Right. Fair. I said all of them. All of the hours. Um, okay. If we spent 17 minutes on the first question, that might be true. <laughs> that is a common occurrence on these. I, I that, that's why I asked if we, you wanted to do a hard one. We started with a hard first. one. Um, let's talk about the title. Um, Katie asks, how should we understand the title? This piece like a river, you know, the phrase piece like a river reflect what happens in the story is it underneath the entire book or just break out at certain moments how does it affect our beloved characters why peace there's a lot of questions there emily then says why a river um so how do you uh dare i say interpret the use of the phrase peace like a river in the title and the various allusions that it calls to mind tim i'm going to turn that to you first the most obvious <laughs> it, I, it, I think it's really fitting that the first question that we had was about symbolism. And now we're getting to one of the most loaded symbolic things in like you know, the ge- geographical, you know, panoply of literature yeah. is rivers. Yeah. Especially, so American, most, especially American literature. Especially American literature. I mean, Huckberry Finn. Yep. But then going back before that, Dante, I mean, and I, I would think like, kind of like Greek mythology, there's this sense of in the afterlife, more in Christian, more in the Christian vision of the afterlife, there's a sense that um, one must cross the river into either, gosh, I think hell or heaven. Like the river Styx. Yeah. And then there's also that river, which is the river of forgetting, Mm. Is it Lethe, L-E-T-H-E? Um, but mm. I think the most direct correlation from this book is just simply the hymn. He's like a river. I think that's the place where it sticks most firmly. And isn't it sung? Aren't the lyrics mentioned in the first third of the book somewhere? Peace like a river? I'm not going to sing it. Are you guys waiting well, for me now, to start singing? <laughs> now that you've Maybe. mentioned that you don't want to sing it, I kind of am waiting if you just start singing it. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, I'm not going to sing it. This was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the... Um, yeah, the reason we're all on this podcast is because we can't sing. Um, yeah. Right. The, uh, I do like the, 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 the mention of the river of forgetfulness and then, and then the question of the river Styx leading you into Hades in connection with the hymn, Peace Like a River. And this is the kind of thing that interests me because if you just say, so if you think about symbols, symbols are meaningful more because of the tradition that has give, that has sort of endowed them with archetypal meaning throughout centuries, right? So the concept of a river, on the one hand, we have 
you know, it, it means so many different things in American literature, partly because, for example, slaves were sold up or down the river. And so that became a big thing that adds right. extra meaning to Huckleberry Finn, for example. But when you look at a river like this, the, the, the sort of confluence or the collision of, of the theme of, of the image of a river, which can lead you to forgetfulness, can lead you into hell, or as in the hymn, can be a sort of, um, the river ostensibly represents a sort of um, salvation or a spiritual peace, obviously. Um, and so to, to, for anger to collide all those different images together is is when it adds extra meaning to me because at times it feels like it's the river sticks, right? And that they're descending into hell. And we talked about how there is even in the scene with the, um, the geysers and stuff or the, the, the fiery, the fiery inferno, you know, there are times when it feels like he's descending into hell, right? Like he's climbing the, the mountain at the beginning of the inferno. You know, that's what I think of when I think of the posse scene when they're, when they're climbing through the badlands. And then sometimes it feels like, you know, it's a, it's a like it's like the hymn. It's meant to be the sort of peace, like an inner peace that's brought on by the Holy Spirit. And then sometimes there's all these questions of how do we think, how do we remember each other, and how do we retell our story? And so all those different ideas are happening at the same time, and that makes the title and the and that image of a river that much more meaningful because we have all these different things that that particular image has meant or represented or uh, ways it has created meaning throughout centuries and centuries of literature. And so that creates a more dynamic uh, image, I suppose, because of the tradition itself. And mm. It becomes that much more meaningful. So that's way more meaningful. And this, I mean, you think about woods, like like woods in American literature, are a huge thing, but they're also a huge thing in in like Germanic literature and fairy tales. And like it's be, these these are meaningful because of the the long the long arc of of time in which there's you know all these stories that are being added to it and collectively it creates um a dynamic experience that that you know can mean something for us go ahead heidi oh i just think what you're saying is brilliant and um not to make the 17 minutes 19 minutes but i think what you're saying is what i was stumbling till 18 you can do 66 thank you i was stumbling to try to say let this full weight of the symbol be beyond what we can analyze it to be because there's we inherit this collected weight of meaning that you're talking about yeah you mean like let the tradition yes tell let what that inform yeah. instead of saying what do crows mean in peace like a river be like why do i feel a little creepy it's because like i have all these images in my mind of crows around a dead body and vultures circling and like a, a man in a mask that looks like a bird face you know and in those the full weight of that tradition emotionally and interpretively creates then a meaning that we carry into this particular book hmm. and and i think that that is true with the title the as far as i can remember the is the only scene in which a river features prominently the scene of that's not even in this world in the book that is i was wondering the same thing it's it's when jeremiah takes the river rides the river into the kingdom into the Mm -hmm. the far off country the next country Mm -hmm. isn't that the only scene in which a river is prominently featured in the novel i think so and so I think what you're saying is particularly important then is that we have this title, Peace Like a River, 
Hmm. And, and, and the scene in which a river features is a scene of death, rebirth, a scene that's very mysterious, a scene that is uh, going to be interpreted differently by, by people by readers of different traditions. And obviously us all as Christians who have read C.S. Lewis, who have read Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. you know, like we are bringing then a positive meaning into that scene that we can't help that say a materialist reader is not going to see. That's all just a fantasy. That's all just something Reuben made up. Or they have to suspend their disbelief in order to read this novel and see it positively. And and Leifinger knows that. So that we're we're taking into this novel a a a tradition of meaning associated with rivers that that then is going to drive our interpretation and that i think is the risk that he's <clears throat> taking as a novelist and i think it's wonderful so i love tim that you brought up sticks then because if last week as if we accept the thesis that you guys presented last week that he dies and the only time we get the river is in this sort of in-between world where then Jeremiah sacrifices himself and allows um, Reuben to go into this other land and then ultimately live. Then it's like he's at this place where, he, like in this case, the river could take him to, to Hades, right? But instead it takes him to this other land and then ultimately he lives. So it, the idea of the river sticks taking him into Hades, I think is crucial in that moment because there's options, you know? Anything can happen in a sense. He can be, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to go to hell, but Hades being the sort of like ominous mm -hmm. place of tragedy, I suppose, is, is, is always an option there, except for mm -hmm. Jeremiah's actions. And so instead of having, who, who's, the, uh, who, who's the person who drove the boat in the Hades that took you across the river sticks? Caron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of that, he has Jeremiah driving yeah. the boat elsewhere. Um, let's, let's do another question. Emily asked, what's up with the name Swede? Everyone else has nice, normal, even biblical names. Tim, what do you think? Don't we get an explanation of it? Or did I just imagine that? It's just, I think it's just shorthand for um, like the Swedish people. It's, it's a nickname that's kind of common among Swedish people. And I thought I either looked that up or I read that in the book. I must have looked it up. I like the theory that it's semi-autobiographical because <laughs> it's she's a storyteller and yeah. he's a storyteller and has this sort of Swedish heritage, perhaps. And so I like that theory that um Sarah posted on on the feed. I mean, does it bother you if that's not I mean, does it need to be anything else, Heidi? No. I mean, I think he just said he loves his people, wanted to create a character with the same kind of strength of uh like inner strength and drive and uh as the Swedish creative people, purpose it, yeah but Heidi where did you get that did you get that from the text or did you get that from um extracurricular sources that's a great question and I don't remember so because I remember it I remember what you said I'm like oh yeah I remember that but so it must have been in the book maybe because so. I didn't read I didn't read much extracurricular sources on this i might have even read it on facebook i don't know uh -oh. i do not know how i know that but i believe it i like i already just believe it <laughs> <laughs> this well. is why you should all trust me <laughs> like somebody <laughs> told me that some way and and i am putting it out there as a fact so 
Well, good thing you have a platform. <laughs> um, Trust me. <laughs> let's go with um, let's go with this question from Brandon, and it's not LeBlanc. Brandon Harper. I just want to make sure that everybody knows we're not giving Brandon LeBlanc any more airtime. Any more airtime. Um, just kidding, Brandon. Okay, here's, here's, the, here's the question. What was the requirement for being the recipient of a miracle? And what was Jeremiah Land's role in that decision? So Brandon continues, I think it is notable that throughout Jeremiah's life on earth, Reuben was not healed of his asthma. While Jeremiah performed other miracles, such as healing the superintendent and replenishing the gas tank, Reuben continued to suffer. A parallel could be drawn between Christ and the miracles he performed on earth, then his final miracle, which was brought to completion in his death. So, Brandon says, did Jeremiah decide to perform a miracle such as healing the superintendent, or did it just happen as a product of his faithfulness, but outside of his influence? If Jeremiah was able to decide that a miracle should be performed, I can only imagine that some of his loud prayer sessions and walking on air were over Reuben. It also seems that as miracles were performed, Jeremiah was depleted in health. Did he understand that it would take his final act of giving all to heal Reuben completely? But he also knew that perhaps it could not be of his own timing. Uh, end of the question there. So uh, Emily responded saying, I wondered if there was an ET, ET-esque transfer of health happening, but I had, I'd have to reread to understand this better. But they, she would like to hear what uh, we think about this. Um, I had not thought of ET. <laughs> that, that was a new one for me. Um, but w- there's a couple of questions here. I guess there's a question of like his depleting of energy uh, as he um, make these, does miracles. So we can talk about that in a second. But what do you think? How, how were the miracles happened? Did he have any power, so to speak, in deciding what miracles happened? Or was he merely a bearer of miracles uh, that he didn't know when they were going to happen and so forth. What do you think, Heidi? I I really liked this question. I felt a little stumped by it, which is that's, that's a good question. I, yeah. How dare you, Brandon? No, I, I loved that. I loved that because I think so much of that was mysterious. It was, it seemed very clear to me in reading the story that Jeremiah is a, a conduit of power that is beyond him, a transcendent power that is flowing through him, which we would, I mean, Jeremiah is Christian. We would say it was God. Uh, and, and so there was this interplay of <laughs> just the age old question of that, that every, every human asks uh, who believes in God, which is what's, what is divine agency and what is human agency. And I think that that's left deliberately unclear and mysterious in the story, just as it is unclear and mysterious in real life. And so I can't necessarily answer that, but I think that Brandon was really onto something with the prayer. I really loved that particular part of the question when he's talking about the, uh, how much that Jeremiah Land prays for Reuben and, um, seems tormented and suffers because he he cannot heal his son like he's he's not given the ability to do that throughout the entire novel until he trades his life for him which is foreshadowed it was one of those that was a little side note that was one of those things that when he finally does lay down his life for Reuben it's like oh yeah, I should have guessed that because it is foreshadowed throughout the story um, when he says I would take your place um, multiple times he says that. Um, and he is given the opportunity to take his place. 
So, uh, but I think it is left the, the, it, it is deliberately ambiguous. What is Jeremiah's choice? What miracles are Jeremiah's choice? Just mm. as I think in our real human life, there is still a very mysterious interplay between divine will and human agency. And the fact that it's left ambiguous is more realistic than if Leif Anger had made it clear. Can something be a miracle if you know it's coming? That's a really good question. Like, I mean, Christ in the Gospels knows he has power. But sometimes, I don't want to wade into too deep theological waters here. But sometimes I get this sense when I read the Gospels that it's... It's um, that what he's doing is when he goes to heal someone, he's acting in faith, not acting out of confidence in his own power, if that makes sense. So I'm not, again, that's a sense that I get. I'm not making a case, like some kind of theological case here, like almost as the the character, like in terms of the character of Christ, not Mm -hmm. the character in, you know what I'm saying? So here, I wonder if it's something similar to that idea where um, Jeremiah is acting in faith and sometimes he feels compelled to take an action and he has the courage and the faith to take action, to, to actually do what he feels compelled right. to do. Um, and then he is in, empowered with that. But if he knew, if he knew that he could just heal Reuben or do whatever he needed to do, then it doesn't make it a miracle anymore. It makes it some kind of, it makes it a plan, right? So then when he, when he, the fact that he doesn't then heal Reuben means that he, for some reason, feels like the, that's not part of the plan, like mm-hmm. in a sort of Abraham Isaac sort of way or something. Um, Tim, what do you think about all this? I don't, I don't have anything to add. I, I, I agree. I think it's, um, he's the conduit. He seems like he's acting in faith when a miracle occurs it seems like he's an agent in some way. Like he, it's, it's not just that he is, um, here I am saying, I don't have anything to add. And now I'm like ramping into something. He doesn't, (laughs) he's an agent in that he makes a choice, but his, the power of the miracle comes from above, not from him. It seems. Yeah. Brandon, Brandon said, uh, let's see here. He says, if Jeremiah was able to decide that a miracle should be performed, I can only imagine that some of his loud prayer sessions and walking on air were over Reuben. And in some ways, I almost think it's the opposite. Like if he has recognized, I mean, I'm sure that's true what Brandon says, but if he has recognized that sometimes he is able to act on behalf of, like in a healing way on behalf of God or through the Holy Spirit or whatever, that he, that he, that he and somehow is a conduit, then probably he's spending a lot of time wondering why he can't then also fully heal his son. Right. And so there is probably a torment or like a a desire. He wants that to happen, but he recognizes that it hasn't been happening. He can touch the superintendent and heal him, but he can't, when he pats Ruben on the back or rubs his chest, he can't heal him. I mean, he kept him alive. So if he, there probably is sort of a, a conflict there an inner turmoil in him. Like, why can't I heal this kid? But other things are happening. And so those prayers were this longing, this, you know, the, the voicing of his desperation to heal his son, perhaps. I totally agree with that, David. And I, I think that that has always, like this story has accessed in me kind of, you said you don't want to de- like go too deep into theological waters, but I, I, and I agree with that. But I think that this story unlocks some of these deep anxieties of, 
the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. And especially the, I think, very, very difficult life of the prophet, as we see in Jeremiah's life, it, it, on the surface, it seems as though those who can either perform or uh, be a witness to miracles would have a greater faith, a deeper faith, right? Because they're seeing something that's beyond normal human experience. But because it's beyond normal human experience, that actually creates, I think, a very deep kind of anxiety and questioning uh, that that takes us into like some very, very deep waters of being human. Thinking about the Old Testament prophets, um, Ezekiel, whose wife died, right? That God said, like he's going to take, he, God said to Ezekiel, I'm going to take from you the desire of your eyes and you shall not mourn, you shall not weep and it shall be assigned to Israel. It costs an enormous amount of suffering and grief to be a prophet. Mm. And, and it's very clear in the Old Testament. These are, you know, I think of Elijah, is it Elisha actually, who's laying on this boy that he's, that, that has died in the lap of his mother, but the, the child itself was given as a sign, as a miracle as a reward to this woman who is hospitable to the prophet. And then he grows up and he has a terrible headache and he dies. And then Elisha comes and lays on him and prays for hours and hours and hours. And I'm imagining the crisis of faith that it was to this prophet to have given this woman, this child, and then to see the child die. And so, and I think this book does that beautifully, like digs into the cost of being a miracle worker. And what that, like the, the crisis, the constant crises that you would go through as being that kind of person as being special, but also bearing a kind of grief that normal people don't. And, and this book really, really digs into that. And I appreciate it for that. I think this is a good segue into a question here from Kelsey, because she asks, can we discuss Jeremiah Land's sickness a little? Mm-hmm. What do you think the significance was? The timing of it struck me as significant, as though his suffering may be just as paid so Davy could stay free. He got better later, and that may be around the time that Davy ended up with Walter, since that wasn't a sense of loss of Davy's freedom. Um, and then she asked another question I want to come back to. But <clears throat> then somebody else says, let's see. Oh, okay, Melanie says, it occurred to me today that it was in the middle of the story when Jeremiah Land is sick that Reuben was his strongest and most powerful. And so that may, uh, she says it clearly foreshadows the end of the story. Yep. Tim, what do you think of that idea? Um, and can you read the last part of it, David? So this like the second part of the question. Yeah. Um, she says, can we discuss Jeremiah's sickness? What do you think the significance was? And then she just points out that the timing seems significant as though his suffering may be justice paid. So David could stay free. Um, and then somebody else mentions that when Jeremiah is sick is when Reuben is his strongest and most powerful. Um, and maybe that foreshadows the end of the story. Do you think it's anything, is there anything, I mean, is that a complete enough reading for you of, of Jeremiah Land's pneumonia kind of in the middle of the book? Boy, I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't look for anything more. That's not true. I looked for more than just him being sick Mm -hmm. because it's also the time that he's meeting Rosanna, right? Isn't it kind of Roxanna, kind of like Roxanna right in the beginning of their courtship. This is before they leave on their trip. 
Yeah. When they're and, still in roofing. Oh, 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 yes, 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 yes. I'm so sorry. I was thinking, doesn't he get sick a little bit Ru- later? Ru- Ruben gets sick when they're there. And she's mm-hmm. patting him on the back and everything. I thought that he got, I thought that mm-hmm. Jeremiah got sick. He's I'm, still I'm recovering. I'm totally qualified for answering this question. I've just, I need to recuse myself. <laughs> I can't, if I can't remember that part, then I don't need to answer this question. Well, so we were talking about the Jeremiah's role in the miracles and so forth. And, and then that leads to Jeremiah's sickness here. And if it's true, what they're saying that perhaps when, so, so, to summarize what she's saying here, there's this scene where, remember the scene where he's, Reuben is working on the building and he's getting stronger and stronger and he has to go work and then make all these adult choices with money and things like yes. that because his father's sick. And so there's a case to be made here. I think that was what Kelsey is saying and, and Melanie, that maybe when Jeremiah is sick is when Reuben is strongest. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there is that foreshadows the end, and maybe there's something in that, like for Reuben to be strong, Jeremiah has to be weak. And maybe there's like a there's that's where the ET sort of transfer is going on. I'd like to go back and reread it and see if there's a moment where like before Reuben goes out and does all this work that he touches Jeremiah or something like that. I I didn't read it for, in that way, but you know, maybe that's something buried in there that Edgar was having some fun with. But if that's the case, then it seems like Jeremiah doesn't get to choose who receives the miracles because he didn't, he would probably, I mean, it doesn't seem like he would choose. How did he choose to have pneumonia? Right. Make Ruben stronger. Right. I thought that the, the transfer of power idea was interesting. And I, I think that that works in the story. I didn't pick up on it when I read it. I didn't think of it that way, but I, I think you could make that case. Like I would be interested in reading that paper if someone's, someone was to make that case, go through and find kind of a transfer hmm. of power. Um, I, I did think, I agree that that was a foreshadowing of the, the, uh, the transaction on Ruben's behalf that happens at the end of the story. Um, but I didn't pick up on it at the time, which I should have, but I didn't. Um, and I do think that the idea of the wounded healer is um, like explored a lot in that particular section. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's important to the story and important in Western culture, Western stories, I think this idea of like this, the, the healer who bears the weaknesses of those he heals. I mean, obviously that's Christ-like image. Um, and then, uh, but I think that that kind of carries like there, that's an important figure in Western culture. And I think Jeremiah has that for sure. Aren't there, Insects or animals or something like that. Well, maybe not animals, but some kind of creatures or flowers or something that like heals another living organism and then in subsequently dies in doing so. There's got to like, yeah, gotta I'm be sure. right. I'm there's, sure. every, every, there's everything in nature. Um, okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Anderson a little bit because Susan Johnston says it's still bugging me that Jeremiah said with such confidence. Anderson, you and I will not meet again. And then they did. A lot. Jeremiah seems like a man of few words, and the words he does speak are true. So why this big pronouncement? Is it just to keep him hum- humble? And then Christina 
and Sarah and a bunch of other people say this also bugged them. So um, someone else says, well, let's answer that question first, but there are some other Anderson questions to kind of follow up with. Andreessen, right? Yeah, sure. I just read, okay. I don't read the two E's, I guess, as okay. the, uh, as quite as pronounced as you do. <laughs> uh, Andreessen. Uh, so he says, we're not going to meet again, but then they do. So is this just to keep him hum- humble? What's, what do you, how do you read that, Tim? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to go back to last week. I, I... So this bugs you too? I, yeah. Okay. Really bugged me. Okay. Heidi, solve their problem. I don't know. I, I think... <laughs> It's tempting to read Jeremiah as like a God figure, but he's not. He's so I, he's just a person who has a special gift. And so he is not endowed with God-like clarity that we, that every pronouncement he makes has to come true. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a few points along the way that he makes mistakes, that he, that he missteps, that he, he overstates, that he's, he, he goes into a depression. He forgets, but he lets his kids stay home from school. Like he's not (laughs) perfect. Like, and so. That's a sign of of perfection. That last one there was, yeah. (laughs) But he's, he does it out of. I mean, he, he lets them stay home because he's afraid because he's, you know, like he's, he's just a guy, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and we have to read him as, as human and flawed. And I think that these are the kinds of moments in which, when he makes this dogmatic statement, you and I will not meet again. And his children think that he is, uh, I, and the guy kind of changes his mind. And goes off with the putrid fed. And I still don't know whether or not he should have done that. Like still, I look back on that and I'm like, I don't know if what if his joining with Andre, with Andreessen was the right decision. I'm saying that with air quotes. So I, it might have been when I say I don't know, that's not like code for I disagree. I actually just really don't know. And so... I think with Jeremiah Land, he that that anger throws these things in there partly so that we will humanize him and not see him as like this godlike, uh, you know, Dumbledore figure. He is the dad and he's human. Hmm. I also think that it's the kind of thing that someone says yes, in exactly. moments of conflict. So it's like almost kind of like saying, making a threat. The other thing I've wondered a lot is, so where does he say that? When they're on the road already? I can't remember if it's while they're still in roofing and Andreessen comes and visits or if it's when they're... At home? Not... Yeah, and you know what's happening right now is there are listeners yelling at yeah, yeah exactly right to right. remind us. Okay. It's a page okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's right there in the pub. It's so obvious. I'm looking at it. I wish we could hear you. I wish we could hear you, listeners. We can we can hear the great chorus of voices across across the uh, the two days. Unfortunately, I am not a prophet nor the daughter of a prophet, so I cannot hear you. It almost okay. So for my point, though, I don't know that it actually matters. I think part of it is that I wonder. It's either like this sort of threat, like 
the kind of thing you say to someone who you have conflict with, the, the point being, we're not friends here, right? right? Or I've wondered, is it a way of him telling him we're leaving? And it's right. almost like, it's almost like a way of telling, telling him, prepare your loins. <laughs> Gird, <Right. your> loins. <laughs> Gird up your loins for the fight. Prepare, yeah, prepare for the long haul. Right. And, and it's like a subtle way of him pointing to what they're going to do. Um, but the, that there's going to be a journey there. So, and then, so I think, I don't know that it, it's meant to be, I, I don't think that there's a gap there. I don't think that like, that, that anger like puts this, this thing there and then, it, and then like forgets about it. Like, I don't think it's like a, like a, an issue in the novel. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Anderson here because Anderson here, because some people, um, you know, there's questions about why does he give anger, give Anderson, Anderson more of a human connection with Jeremiah beyond the putrid fed moniker only to have him die. And then off stage at that. And then, um, Lisa says she reads Anderson as and reason. So Anderson being a reasonable character because he has no emotional attachment to Davy. So anger pulls us by the heartstrings to love Davy against all reason. It seems that he, you know, in wrestling with the Lord Jeremiah is brought to see the reasonableness of justice. But Anderson is sort of pure reason. You know, this is a person who I have to go after. This is my job. He did something wrong. So what do you, what do you think about all this, all this stuff here? It, would, would that be a criticism no, she, of Andreessen? It's, it's, it's no, just I, an interpretation, I think. Yeah. Interpretive I, statement. What if he represents reason? Is, as long as there's no... I don't know. Maybe I can't help, but um, I'm I'm still kind of like reading into the question a little bit. I I think he could be reason if that juxtaposes him with sort of like feelings or human relationships. Then I'm going to say I don't know. I'm not so I don't know about that because I think I don't know that Andreessen is how do I say this? He's a man who has to do his job Mm -hmm. and to set him as counter to those things that make the family so warm, so connected that make it hurt to be for Danny to be away from them. If he's being set up as kind of like juxtaposed to them, I have a little, I I, I don't like that. So, Kendra says that she's been thinking a lot about the reason in his name. And so she's wondering if maybe there's anger showing the relationship between faith in the character of Jeremiah and reason in the character of Anderson. Like there was a wrestling between the two, but and they are compatible and work together. That's hard for me because they both die <laughs> uh, yeah. in different ways in, in the case of, and both in very violent ways. I don't know the, about a wrestling between the two that in which they are compatible and work together, but you know, there does seem to be at the core of this novel questions of what, what is it reasonable to have faith in, you know, like that seems to be one of the big, like at at what point does it become beyond reason to have faith in something? And at what point is, is it reasonable to actually believe in something mysterical, mysterical, Mysterical. miraculous or mysterious? Yeah. I, I have, I, interpreted Andreessen 
a little differently. And I think my, my, the way that I read it was that the counterpoint to Andreessen is not Jeremiah, but Jape. And that there's this failure of any kind of human institution in the face of naked evil. Andreessen is an embodiment of human justice, right? Like he's going out to find Davy because he's following the law. So he represents, he's an embodiment of the law. He's the character that is trying to bring him in for little J justice. Mm -hmm. And in, you know, there's a counterpoint to that, or there's a, um, uh, that that works within the Western genre, that works within kind of this archetypal tradition that we've been talking about. Um, and then it works within the little world of this novel. There has to be like the law hunting David Davy down. And that's Andreessen. But that's <laughs> that's buried in the lignite of Jape. Like Jape is and Valdez, right? They dominate the story. There's this shadow character in the story, this, this idea of, of, of naked evil. And so I read Jape as the counterpoint to Andreessen and that only redemptive love can bring true big J justice as represented by the death then of Jeremiah land and the laying down of life and everything that that accomplishes in this family. Mm. Hey, let me ask you a question that your, you, your first phrase was that he, Anderson, Anderson embodies justice, human mm, justice, human justice, institutionalized justice. And I love the concept of like, for me, I'm actually sort of more interested in what, things living things embody in stories more mm-hmm. than what they symbolize so totally I'm, that's what i think too so when i as soon as i thought that in my head i thought oh that's a great way of putting that i'm more interested in that than symbols those were the things that came into my head and then i immediately thought wait is there is there a, a difference, difference? <laughs> so am i just arguing myself in circles so is there a difference between not to add another minute to our 18 minutes but and tim you can feel free to answer this too is there a difference between something symbolizing something in a story and something embodying something in a story. And in particular, I'm very interested in the way living things, and we can include birds if you want, but the way people in particular and characters embody things as opposed to symbols that are supposed to create meaning. So is there a difference between the two things? Tim, you want to go first on that? Well, I'm trying to think of an example, maybe you guys can help me, of someone or somebody embodying Andreessen I think is a good example of that I think he's an embodiment of human justice but I don't think he's a symbol of human justice but is there is there another from outside this book okay let's do embodiment crime, of, let's do crime and punishment what does Raskolnikov or Sonia embody we can do a little you know a little preview here a for little people preview yes is can you think of, those discussions by the way have been so incredibly good Agreed. They've, been, they've been fun. Agreed. Um, Some of the is, best we've so done. What, mm-hmm. Good work, guys. <laughs> I think Sonia might represent. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Chris, pause that. I was for a right second. there. I was right there. Okay, but I don't. I need to make a distinction here. I, it's a question. So, my, what Heidi had said is 
Anderson embodies something. Is there right. a difference between embodying something and, and representing something? And you were just yeah, right, the word representing. Right. So, oh, sorry. There's a difference sorry. between representing and embodying. I want to make sure that we're just defining our terms no, thank here you. so we know what we're talking about. I think that she embodies Christian charity. Okay. Do you think she represents or symbolizes it? I don't know. I don't think that she does. Right. So there is a yeah. difference. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and so I think that that's where, but it's a subtle difference, but it's a big one. So I'm trying to think how to define that on the spot. I think when I think of symbolism, I'm thinking of it within a discrete boundary. Like in the story of Peace Like a River, geese symbolize dot, dot, dot. And when I'm thinking about representation, I'm thinking more along, oh, let me, or, or embodiment. I'm thinking about this. When Davy's on the run and somebody has got to be chasing him. So I, as an author, I'm going to have to create a character or a group of characters who's chasing Davy. And that character or group of characters has to have a real life details, a story. They need to be a, a person, but their purpose in the story is to chase Davy. So okay. how am I going to do that? Right? So Andreessen comes into being. So and it's Andreessen, like they, it solves a problem for the writer. It serves a structural purpose, but it also, like we've been talking about with the birds and all that, it carries a weight of that that the reader is going to attach to. So you have to be careful with that. But I'm not thinking, what do I want this character to symbolize within the story? He is serving a purpose, and 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 then something's going to happen to him, and that thing that happens to him has to also carry the weight of the story and the tradition and all of that. And so that is an embodiment. You're taking that entire idea and putting it into a, a character and a story. But I'm not necessarily trying to prove some kind of cosmic point with this character, hmm. nor am I trying to make <laughs> yeah. them symbolize something in the story that that the reader has to then interpret and rightly, hmm. or they're so, going to miss the whole point. So I went to Webster's Dictionary uh -huh. while you were talking, just just to see, just to get a sense of what it would say. So for the definition of embody, it says first to give a body to, and then in parentheses a spirit colon incarnate and then it also says to cause to become a body or part of a body and then it also says to represent in human or animal form hmm. to give a body to a spirit or to cause to become a body or part of a body or to represent in human or animal form for a symbol for symbolize it says to serve as a symbol <laughs> so then i clicked on symbol of course. <laughs> that's helpful yeah that's so i clicked on symbol good. and it says the first one says an authoritative summary of faith or doctrine such as a creed and then the second thing says something that stands for or suggests something else by reason of relationship, association, convention, or accidental resemblance. Um, and then it also says an object or act representing something in the unconscious mind that has been repressed. Um, an act, sound, or object having cultural significance and the capacity to excite or objectify a response. So it seems like, as you're saying, all the definitions of symbol have much more, there's an end sort of in mind, such as, you know, exciting or, or objectifying a response or 
bringing out something that's been repressed or creating associations or something like that. Whereas to embody is much less about the, the, the outcome and much more about the incarnation of something. Right. So when you're trying to embody it. something, you're trying to, you're trying to create an, trying to create a picture that can help us understand or experience something perhaps, but then a symbol is about you, you're after a specific end. Right. You, a, you, you use a symbol because you want something specific out of it. You know, you want some sort of relationship or response, whereas embodying doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have an end in mind. Right. I don't know if that's, is that what you're saying? It seems like that's. Yes. I think that a symbol can be, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. And then I just think the temptation to allegorize stories is so strong. This means this. Thanks, this John. Presents this, and so I think that Andreessen is. I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure that we can allegorize him, but I think what we can say is he embodies a certain. He he embodies a certain perspective in the story. They need him to chase Davy, and then something bad has to happen to him because Jape is so evil, and Jape does conquer this human institution. Hmm. Hey, let's go on to the next question, which does have to do with symbols. And Tim, I want to turn to you on this one. Susan says, does Davy have to get away to keep within the Western archetype and archetypes and genre? I really thought Davy was handing over Sarah and then turning himself in, Susan says. I was disappointed to learn that he lives in exile his whole life. It feels like the hero riding off into the sunset scenario but the rest of the book felt ambiguous as to whether or not davy is a hero so tim you like me love westerns we've just been discussing uh all the pretty horses which i'm read well i'm listening to and um so you have a at least a semi-firm grasp of some of these archetypes in the genre so does davy have to get away to keep within that or and how, how does the uh how does his ending strike you given given the, the context of the genre I, I also thought that he was going to turn himself in. Um, I don't know. It's hard. And by the way, David, I'm going to ask you the same. I, I want you to answer this question because I think that you know. Me too. Westerns much better than I do. It, it, does, that, does the question assume that this is a Western? Now, I, I think we would agree that there are enough allusions, especially from Swede, that there are there are, the author is kind of alluding to kind of like the oeuvre of western storytelling and the kind of archetypes of western storytelling so yes in that way but i don't know that the whole structure would fall apart if davy broke that kind of tradition of the outlaw and turned himself in i don't think that it would shatter that kind of um narrative blueprint i think it would work fine what do you think david david (laughs) i don't think he was ever going to turn himself in i would like to know from leif anger if that was ever in consideration for him if that was if he knew that at the end he how it was going to end or if he if he thought about uh having him turn himself in but he there's too many references to jesse james and the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all these different outlaws that 
I, I just didn't think, I mean, I, I think he, I think if he had turned himself in, it definitely would have been a subversion or a, um, a reversal of the typical Western. So to answer her first question, I think he probably does have to get away with to keep within the Western archetype and the genre. I mean, I think that he, he kind of is this classic character where in the, in a sort of wild West scenario, someone is sort of makes a choice in a um, crucial situation and the choice leads them to be incapable of participating in society anymore in the sort of peaceful culture of civilization. And so he's forced to sort of be on the run. And there was never really a way in my mind for him to participate once again in that culture. And so I don't, I didn't ever really feel like there was going to be a, true reconciliation but i think as i think someone mentioned this on the facebook thread that it might have even been brandon leblanc actually that the hope at the end of the story is in the fact that there is still something of a relationship with ruben um and that and that there is still hope that he has a chance even though he's sort of an outlaw on the run type of character at the end of the story um I think that ambiguity has to be there though, because I think one of the great questions of almost every truly great Western story, whether it's um, a movie or a novel is the ambiguity of its heroes. Um, There are lots of, of interesting stories that have people who are just purely heroic. You think of like Bonanza. Well, actually I don't even touch that. I don't That's not true. The Lone Ranger or a Roy Rogers movie or something like that. Um, they, so they are kind of purely good, like true white hat characters, but the stories that truly sort of transcend the genre that are truly interesting and truly last are characters where there is a lot more um, ambiguity in the characters. You know, you think of the searchers, Rooster Cogburn, Rooster Cogburn, the character Ethan in the searchers, even uh, to go stick with John Wayne, uh, the stagecoach. Um, which is the first great Western. Yeah, and you think of a lot of, you know, you think of Lonesome Dove, all the pretty horses. I mean, uh, <laughs> Blood Meridian. I mean, the, the great Western stories almost always have within them this ambiguity. And that's why you look at something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That movie is one of the most beloved movies ever because it taps into the question of what makes someone a hero in the Old West. And in a, in a place where the wilderness was so chaotic, you know, the questions of heroism and evil were inherently sort of uh, ambiguous. And so I think that if it's sticky, if it, I think that that's one of the things that makes this a Western is that he is contemplating those questions in this setting. And that's why even in Swede's stories, she is trying to grapple with who's good and who's bad and who dies and who lives. You know, I, th- I think that that, that plays with it. So, I, um, I don't, Davey's definitely not a hero riding off into the sunset. Um, there's no, there are no heroes riding off into the sunset unless it's Jeremiah riding off into the sunset of par- paradise or something. Um, but I think Brandon's right that there is a little bit of hope because of the connection to Ruben um, that, that he occasionally does have, that he's still sort of longing for something more. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling now. Um, trying to think out well, loud. I but. keep nodding vigorously because I, I think that you're. You should have started talking I, I know, earlier. I know, I know less about the Western genre than the two of you do, especially David. But I do 
see in the story itself, the story closes again. We have to keep coming back to the story closing with this line. Just as that music stays outside the pattern, I would give it. So does my telling fall pitifully short of what the place is. He's, this is a story with music outside the pattern that we want. And it's up to the reader then that this is, I keep thinking about this interview that I saw with Adam Driver uh, about the actor. Yeah. About this, about star Wars. And he, someone asked him about, you know, all the emotion that his character has to show and, um, and someone (laughs) asked him about like the responsibility of that, you know, emotion. And he says, I don't see it that way at all. I loved his response. He said, it's not my job to have any feelings. It's my job to tell a story and it's the viewer's job to have feelings. And I, I think that that's brilliant. And I, this story ends ambiguously and some people are going to find that very satisfying. And some people are going to find that with a, like approach that with a lot of internal dissonance. And I think both of those are equally valid, but this is a story in which the music goes outside the pattern. And Dave, the ending, Davey's trajectory makes sense for Davey. And some of us are going to think like, wow, that, that, that's really creative or I like that. And I, I feel like what he did was right. And so now he's you know, like, we're going to have a lot of responses to that. And some people are going to feel like, he evaded justice. He didn't, he's, he's, it's, it's a dangling thread in the story and it's intentionally that way. And however you respond to that is valid. But I I think for Davey, it had to be that way. Mm. Um, We should get moving here. We, we, Mm -hmm. do you guys have time for one or two more? Yes. Okay. Mary asks, Maybe it's already in this thread, but it came up on a different thread and I wanted to be sure it was here. Who was Jape shooting at and why? Shooting Jeremiah and Ruben seemed deliberate to me, but doesn't make sense. So um, I went back and read the passage and it, you know, it doesn't make clear you mm-hmm. know, that he was aiming for somebody, but it does say that he was being uh, patient and he went in and you know, um, he, he didn't try to conceal himself. He went in and got a, a, a chair. He simply picked a spot it says so how, how do you read who he was aiming for i mean do you think he was aiming for because it's saying why didn't he shoot davy and sarah why did he shoot reuben and uh part of me thinks he probably just starts shooting and somehow davy was blocked like i thought a lot about how i would stage this if i was making a movie of it uh-huh. um because it either has to look like he just starts shooting wildly or he has to aim and he either has to hit or miss and I, part of me was like, maybe I would have him shoot for Davey and something be like him not be able to do it. And then he has to shoot because you have to interpret his, like his rage has to be oriented towards somebody. And as a filmmaker, you'd have to, or a screenwriter, you'd have to make that choice as to who it's oriented to. Um, and I can see it being Ruben, but he doesn't shoot Ruben first. He shoots Jeremiah first, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, how do you? I mean, does. does it does it matter? I mean, it matters to Mary, <laughs> right? Well, I uh, it's a good question. I think that he was going for all of them, so it doesn't say anything about Davy and Sarah, 
which is interesting. Davy was standing but, by the car, and later on, well, then later on, it does say that Davy dove into the back seat of the car. Right, and it, I mean, and it's very clear that Jay, it, it's a standalone sentence, which that's important always. I suppose Jape led me like a flaring goose, so he is aiming for Reuben. Whether or not he was trying to kill all of them or trying to kill Davy's family isn't clear, but. His patience and his precision, which has always been evident in his character, is evident here, which is really like, that's really creepy that that evil would be that precise and that patient. Like, that's the thing that haunts me about this character, too. Okay, so we lost him here for a second. So Heidi and I are going to push on here and, and answer one or two more questions. Um, Tim lost his internet. So when he pops back on, okay. we'll get his answer. But here's a question. Um, uh, Heidi, Kelsey wants to know about Sarah's ending. She says she just kind of had a hard time believing it. What did you think of the way her ending was? We didn't actually get to know her very well. So does it, mm-hmm. you know, does it make sense to you that she would be, she would end up with, with Ruben? How, what's your perspective on that? We don't right. have a lot to really I, go by. Sure. I mean, I can understand why that felt contrived to, readers because we don't know her very well um but i think my my response was well we don't know her very well and so you trust trust the writer yeah like her her her, the sky's the limit right um and for ruben too because he's been reborn exactly well and i liked i kind of liked how the bethany orchard thing kind of like petered out that felt very realistic um you know young boy's first crush and then it just kind of turns into nothing and um and so i well he's I mean, been to sad. a real orchard in the, right? in the in-between land so thank you exactly so that's a good point um so yeah i i mean i bought it because i've i we don't know her very well. There's nothing to compare her to, but I yeah, do understand yeah. how that could feel particularly contrived mm-hmm. to somebody. I don't know. What did you think, David? How do I say this without being rude? I <laughs> don't care. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I don't mean that your question, I don't mean to belittle your question. <laughs> um, oh, hey, Tim's back. Um, I don't mean to belittle your to, to belittle her question. It's just for me that doesn't it doesn't bother me. I'm told that's anger is telling us that's what happened at the end of the story. We don't know her that well. He, in some ways, Ruben was the person that helped save her, so she probably had felt you know like they became close as a family, probably, and so then it makes it makes sense. Um, let's move on to this next question. Uh, and welcome back, Tim. Thanks. Jenna says. Actually, this one's for Heidi, but Tim, I'll let you jump on it too. But she said, okay, so Jenna says, there was a thread of grief and trauma that weaved its way through this book. At first, it bothered me that it seemed unrealistic that children, especially, uh, but the adolescents and adults too, could experience and witness the kinds of violence and horrors in this book and just keep going the way they did. But the more I've thought about it and the people in my own acquaintance that have experienced their own deep and profound loss and grief, it does, I think it is a very common fact of life that we are always among the walking wounded, those who carry deep wounds, but just keep going. From the children's abandonment by their mother to Swede's experience at the hands of the boys to Reuben's close proximity to the execution uh, of the two boys to the final violent death of Jeremiah, each of the land children witnessed and experienced extraordinary things, and yet they maintained their equilibrium. In the midst of their common loss and suffering, their sanity and souls remained intact and their trust for each other strong. All but Davy, whose compass is more in question. So 
she says, I would like to hear how well Heidi thinks anger did at portraying the land family from a clinical perspective. I think it is possible for people to maintain their sense of self in the midst of pain and uh, out of control circumstances and their commitment as a family and the incredible of Providence paid a big part, played a big part in this, but there were odds against them. So is anger's portrayal of this aspect realistic to you as a, uh, someone who is as a therapist, someone who has, you know, done lots of schooling. (laughs) Lots of training. Yeah. Lots of training. Um, yeah, I think, I think he nails it. I think he does a great job. They, they are, they show, I think they all show evidence of trauma in the story. Uh, but traumatized people don't shut down. Like they don't just, they're, they're not Victorian heroines. They don't just go into bed and, you know, get up after a year. Um, <laughs> they, like, they are. Wow. Harsh words for the Victorian, the Victorian heroines. I, I have harsh words for Victorian heroines. Ooh. Um, but yeah, traumatized people are very resilient, like extremely resilient for the most part. Trauma shows effects much more internal. The fractures tend to be much more internal. Uh, but most most of the time, traumatized people, especially in a close family group, just form an incredible bond and they just keep going and do what they have to do. And, I, um, and so I, I really think that anger nails this. Um, okay. So you know how we talked about Beatrice and Roxanne as Beatrice? Yes. So Melissa says Mm -hmm. that she doesn't buy it. Um, Mm -hmm. she says she likes Roxanne well, and she's both a good character addition and a good needed addition to the family. But we were, she was so surprised that we thought of her in a Beatrice way without giving any explanation at all. I don't remember not giving any explanation at all there, Melissa, but she says in the divine comedy, Beatrice's role is to lead Dante through heaven, to teach him to approach God by faith to further remove him from any earthly thing, to be part of the transition from earthly to heavenly things. She takes him after Virgil slash human reason has done all it can to pursue what is good, true, and beautiful. She leads him almost all the way to the beatific vision. She's a conduit of grace and beyond earthly troubles. Even the real Beatrice is beyond human love and interaction since she has no substantial relationship with her. He doesn't mean. So yeah, I'm not saying where Roxana would be a parallel, but maybe I'm missing something similar. Do you guys want to address this? Um, I don't recall us... I mean, I remember when we talked about Beatrice, but I thought it was just kind of like one little sliver of Beatrice reminded right. us of yeah. Roxana. I think that's a fair way of putting it. And I, so I, I agree with the kind of question. I don't think that there's a lot of similarities there, especially because Beatrice is such an ethereal um, kind of ideal. She's not, she's not even a real character. I mean, people have listened to the show, Beatrice is not my favorite character in classic literature by a long shot. I don't even think she's a character. She's just this sort of like ideal bumper sticker for wisdom. That's like horribly condescending, but I don't like Beatrice. Um, Roxana is like flesh and bones. She, I know, I know, I know. She's, you know, she's almost the antithesis of Beatrice. So I think the comparison that we make, if I recall correctly, was a thin comparison, not a really thick Yeah, I mean, comparison. Melissa says she's a, that Beatrice was a conduit of grace. And I think that's kind of what we were saying is that in a sense... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, talking about the, we were talking about how it was like they were in the inferno in a sense. And it, like they were in a journey through the underworld. And then they, and then they had this, mm. this beautiful... This beautiful yeah, that's right. Who, that's who right. kind of incarnated or, you know, embodied grace and, and peace and was able to provide that for them so i don't 
I don't know that I would read it too much further than that. Heidi might. Yeah. No, I, I think you guys are right. But I think where where Melissa's right, it's Melissa, right? Who made the comment about Beatrice. Yeah. I do think there is one more thing to it. Uh, and I think where she's, she is right that within the divine comedy, Beatrice is a, um, a conduit of specifically Christian grace. Like she is more Christian. <laughs> she is more redeemed than Virgil. And in Peace Like a River, Roxana is a recipient of grace as well as a conduit of grace. And she is saved in saving the land family uh, within the world of the story. And so I think that that's different than in the Divine Comedy. Uh, Where I think that it is a little bit more, um, though, is that Beatrice is in Western literature not only a conduit of grace, but a conduit of redeemed femininity. Like she is specifically a conduit of grace through kind of this idea of the eternal feminine, like the mother, the lover, the like that she is um, because she is beloved by Monte as a woman she is also then in her redeemed form able to lead him to the kingdom. And I think that does fit with Roxana. They have a need for, the, the girls, or excuse me, the children have a need to be mothered. And she's specifically, because she's a woman, fulfills that and leads them to salvation. And Jeremiah needs a wife and a lover, and she is that to him. And so I, and because of that, she provides grace in a very human way Hmm. to Jeremiah um, in the last, what ends up being the last days of his life. Hmm. So I, I do think that, that, that particular parallel, even though it's not perfect, it's not a perfect one-to-one beam or we're not allegorizing this story. (laughs) We're just looking for connections. And I think that does work. Hmm. All right, let's do this last question here. Kelsey points out that this is perhaps a small question, or it seems like a small question after finishing the book, but it's really the event that changes everything. We've talked about this already a little bit, but at the having read the book now completely all the way to the end, have your has your perspective on the crime that, so to speak, um, instigated the plot of the novel changed? So, mm-hmm. was Davy in the wrong when he shot the two boys? Were you on a jury? Would you charge him as guilty? Is how she put it. But what I, the way I want to kind of take that question and say, having read the whole book, has your perspective on that action and on Davy uh, changed, uh, as she says, it does change everything. It's the sort of you know whether he should have shot them is the thing that alters the the, the narrative of the story for the whole family. So, um, Tim, how would you respond to that? It's kind of your. I guess this is going to be kind of your final thoughts on the book in a way. Yeah, if I were on the jury and he had gone to trial the first time before he escaped, I think I would have. And I knew everything that the book allows us to know. And I think I would have voted for him to be found guilty. And I think at the end of the book, I would also vote to find him guilty. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if there's something that happens during the story subsequent to his escape that she's um, thinking should change our mind. Is there something that should change our mind? Potentially? I don't, I don't know that I necessarily read it like she's saying there's something she should, should change her mind. I think, you know, 
she's just pointing out that this is the crucial, the crucial uh, question. How do you, do you, I mean, how, do you think he, I mean, my he, opinion about Davy's guilt changes, not even a little bit by the end of the book. I, I, I find that really interesting because the, what, when I started the novel, I thought that this was going to be a novel about that. I thought that was going to be a primary contemplation of this novel. And it wasn't for me. And I found that really interesting. It ends up being more about human love than about human justice. And I like that a lot about the book. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the inciting action, but maybe not the... Exactly. It's not the primary contemplation. And I, I... I think it, I think you should think about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's there within the story. Don't ignore it. But it's the whole point is they love Davey no matter what he did. And so I, I never change my mind about, about it. Heidi, did you think when you started the book, you know, after Davey shoots the two boys, did you think there was the possibility that more would sort of be uncovered about Davy's actions or about the boys? Mm-hmm. And as that was uncovered, we would then see like, oh, wow, Davy actually was justified in doing this. Is that what you were I did. I did think that thinking? there would be an unfolding. And I remember we us talking about that earlier in the recordings. Um, I did think that there would be that. And then the trial scene came. And, um, that changed my perspective. Then it was like, oh, this is an actual murder. Mm -hmm. And then Mm. it just, that was, that was the last of the information we get. Um, and kind of the last of the deepening of that storyline. Well, except that you do get like this sense that increasingly Jeremiah and Ruben sort of become more and more, especially Ruben, become more and more uncomfortable with the facts of what happened. Like they're, they're contemplating like, yeah, I mean, he probably did do this, but then as you said, they love him anyway. And so it becomes, there is sort of the, 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 the fact of what he did does haunt their relationship with him. Absolutely. And to a child in many ways, and I think, I think that Leif Anger did this really well to a child that, that question is always settled within relationship, right? Like they're going to pick their brother over this, you know, abstract concept of justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas yeah. Jeremiah Land, he's going to wrestle more with that because mm-hmm. he's an adult. Yeah. And so abstract concepts are actually meaningful to him. And, so, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. true in the novel. He does wrestle with it more and decides to participate in institutionalized human justice. And his children feel betrayed by that, rightly so, because they're children and their brother means more to them. And so I think that mm-hmm. that's very realistic, that particular conflict. But all of that even takes place in the story within this human relationship. It, it never, Leifinger never lets us kind of go outside and think about it just in terms of the abstract. This isn't Plato. This is a story about a family. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think that that was really well done. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, what about you, David? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I think the people are right that, you know, the second shot, or the the possibility of luring them there. I mean, I think there's a lot of gray area in it that mm-hmm. is supposed to leave us uncomfortable with all the decisions that are made from thereafter. I mean, it's almost like that's a difficult decision, but then every decision after that is uncomfortable. 
and difficult. Um, whether it's the, the leaving town, the siphoning the gas, the what Ruben's ultimate choice to lead the people in the wrong direction, um, the the shooting of the boy the second time after he's shot him once and he's still alive. I mean, there's a, all those things are are there's a, there is either they're either downright wrong or they are at best gray, and so that that is what's haunting their love for him, you know, and that makes it difficult to know how to uh, do what you do when you love someone. Um, And so, as you said, it's that, that's almost like, it makes that part of the story more complicated, which makes it very interesting. As you said, it makes it a story about how you love someone who is, uh, you know, in a situation that is, not for the best <laughs> or who has done things that are difficult. You know what else is complicating about it is imagine what would have happened had Davey not done anything. Yeah. The police are not going to come to their rescue. We've already covered that. Right. I mean, in some ways, I, that's the Western I'm element really to the story. Sympathetic. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I'm really sympathetic. And I think readers should be too, that I think Davey's motives went beyond just protecting his family. And that's why he would ultimately probably, if he was put on trial, be found guilty. We presume it because they go mm-hmm. beyond that, but the motive to protect his family when these two guys have already done a great wrong to his sister and the police are not going to come to yeah. his aid, man, I'm really sympathetic with Davy in that regard. The luring the kid, the luring the two boys and kind of like, that last shot, which was done in like cold blood, boy, that's hard to have sympathy with. But the general motive to protect his family, even through the use of violence, boy, There's I get it. There's a sense that in Davy's mind, civilization has failed them. And so he had to take it mm-hmm. into his hands. And thus, civilization does not get the option to judge him. And that's a very sort yeah, of, right. that's a very Western thing. Like, how do you build civilization, preserve civilization, and live in civilization? when too often it fails you and you have to find ways to survive. And so there's a yeah. fine line between survival and, you know, in his mind, he probably is thinking that there is the sort of frontier justice that they deserve to be what happened to them. And so the civilized, the justice of civilization and the justice of the frontiers or the wilderness, so to speak, are clashing. And, um, you know, ultimately is there a capital J justice that supersedes all that there might, you know, there is, and within the context of the story, trying to identify how that works out is uh, complicated. (laughs) So, all right, well, we've gone for a really, really long time. Uh, Well, like we said, you have to reserve all the hours. So um, I guess that's it. Unless either of you want to say, add anything here. Nope. We've said all the things, well, some of the things, but for enough of the time. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, next week we are going to be starting on, um, Catcher in the Rye so that reading schedule's been up uh, is posted and uh, I'll send that on an email as well but it's on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere so be prepared for that Uh, don't forget about the podcasts on Patreon for the Crime and Punishment and then of course all the different ways you can participate in the conversation for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh I'm David Kern thanks so much for listening to this series of Peace Like a River and in the meantime between now and the next episode happy reading happy reading